Please join me in John 15. John 15, I know it's the Christmas season, but I want us to go back into the upper room one more week before we take on a Christmas message next week, and then of course, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But I think it's good for us to, yes, focus on the birth of Christ, but think together at the same time about the death of Christ. To be reminded at the same time, simultaneously, as we think about the birth of one in Bethlehem, but why was he born? What did he come to do? And so I want us back in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, just hours now before the crucifixion. Remember all these words, Jesus is speaking the night before he's crucified at 9 a.m. the next morning. And we come to a section where Jesus returns to the theme of love and really the greatest love imaginable. He's going to talk about it here and call us to it. So John 15, let's go in together now, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So in this section, Jesus continues this long teaching with his disciples, but he comes back around to this theme of love. And notice with me, first of all, this is a command to love. Jesus gives his disciples and now us a command to love. Notice verse 12 again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And if that sounds familiar, Jesus already taught these very same truths earlier in this very talk. In John 13, 34, we read this, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So the question is, why would Jesus keep repeating this? Why would he tell his disciples over and over again, even the night before his death, you guys, you need to be loving each other. Here's the reason. He repeats it because he truly expects them to obey what he's telling them. He sincerely expects them to actually love each other. I love verse 17. These things I command you. He says, here's why. Here's the purpose statement. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So I'm commanding you to love one another so that you'll love one another. You know, there are a lot of areas in life where maybe you go and they have rules, but nobody expects you to keep those rules. You may even have some of those where you work, maybe in the break room. There are some posted things that they put up there and um, maybe the employer has to do it, but nobody's really policing any of that. So you might work in a place where they say no open toed shoes. And, uh, but you notice after some time, a lot of people are wearing open toed shoes. Apparently nobody cares about that rule. Or maybe you work in a place where they say, Hey, in this area, hard hats are required. But you notice, you know, a lot of times nobody's wearing hard hats. I guess it's just a rule. Nobody really goes with. Maybe you work in a place where certain reports are due at a certain day and time. And you notice, no, that deadline comes and goes. There are no consequences. Nobody seems to care about that. Well, we don't treat the commands of God like those. 
Whatever God has told us, we can't say that, well, I don't think it's that big a deal. I'm not going to go with it. Whatever God commands, we want to be obedient. We obey because he is the Lord and we are his disciples. That's just what disciples do. They follow the master. We obey him because now we have a new nature if we're in Christ. We still struggle with temptation. Sometimes we don't want to do what he wants. But if we are alive in Christ, the spirit of God is saying, no, but you do need to obey. And so we want to, we're inclined now to obey. It's part of the new nature. And Jesus reminded us in this very sermon here in the upper room that we obey him because we love him. Do you remember John 14, 21? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So we don't look at these commands of Jesus and think, well, uh, I, I don't even think he cares about me. I'm going to follow him. No, we, we know he cares about us and we follow him because we love him. And this command to love one another, we would say this is foundational. He's repeated this enough in this one sermon and really throughout the New Testament, this is one I can't easily dismiss at all. In fact, we don't have trouble understanding this one, do we? We don't need a commentary to help us understand that. What does he mean by love one another? We don't need to go into the languages. I mean, it is the Greek word agape, but we don't really need that. We understand when he says love one another. I got what he's talking about here. And so it's not a matter of knowledge here. It's a matter of actually doing it. It's taking this command seriously and then asking for God's help to do it. That, that's the issue here. So rightly, we're concerned about some other commands. We think, all right, well, I don't want to be a liar now as a believer. So, all right, I'm not going to tell lies and I'm not going to commit adultery. Of course, we're, we're thinking about those. We might be tempted to hear love one another and go, well, this is pretty lightweight. This is soft. If I do or don't do that, I don't think that really matters to our Lord, except for he keeps telling us over and over again, I'm commanding you to do this. I'm commanding you to do this so that you will actually do this, so that you'll love one another. Now, what happens in a church where the believers don't love one another? It all falls apart. And if you want to read an example of that, when it happened in history, you can go into your Bible and in the, the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that's where Paul is writing to a church where they had no idea how to love each other until he taught them. It was a church that was distracted by other things. They were divided. Somehow they were prideful and they had no reason to be prideful and they were marked by selfishness. So I want you to hear this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, because this is where God through Paul taught a church how to love one another. Now we're glad it's in the Bible. Sometimes we use it in weddings and that's certainly fine, but in its original context, this is to believers. Here's how you love each other. And if you don't have love, think about how everything else is, is worthless without it. So 1 Corinthians 13, one and following. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Then he teaches them how to love. Here's what it looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then he concludes, verse 13, he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
So here in the upper room discourse, the night before his crucifixion, he's teaching them a lot. And remember, we saw last time how Jesus said, I'm the vine and your branches, and I'm expecting you to bear much fruit. And chief among the fruit he expects to see among his disciples, because he keeps repeating it, is love. You're going to love me, you're going to love the world, but you are going to love each other. Remember when we see in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 talks about what is right out of the gate first. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then all those other wonderful things as well. So what we find here from 1 Corinthians when Paul teaches on this is that whatever fruit you have, as great as it might be, if you don't have the fruit of love in you, then it's all worthless. It's all pointless. Remember he said, without love, these great things you might do, noisy gongs, clanging cymbals. Without love, no matter what else you do, you're nothing. Without love, you gain nothing. So unlike the world around us where it's devoid of real love, you and I are to be marked by love. Yes, love toward God. Remember that greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And immediately even saying that, I fall short of that. I don't love him as perfectly as he calls for. He's worthy of perfect love. I just can't do it. But by the power of the Spirit, we're, we're moving in that direction. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And immediately that reveals, like, I have not done that perfectly. But Lord, by your Spirit, would you help me to do that? But here we're reminded, it's not just loving him and loving others out there. But in the body of believers, among fellow disciples that we are, we are to love one another. Jesus keeps repeating it in the upper room. Is to be a defining mark of his disciples. Remember chapter 13, he said, this is how people are going to know that you're my disciples because you guys will be loving each other. But we acknowledge this is not natural. This is not what comes naturally. Selfishness comes naturally to us, doesn't it? We have to overcome that as the spirit of God sanctifies us. But maybe today you're here and you're hearing this call to love one another and you're thinking about personal application. One application could be this, that all of us would forsake the goal of a solo Christian life. Maybe you've had that as your ambition. You know, I don't need a church. I don't need these other people. I just need Jesus. It's just Jesus and me in this life. And that's what all he wants for me. And yet he's told you over and over again, just in this passage of scripture, no, I'm commanding you to love one another. So a solo Christian life is disobedience to Christ. Or maybe you're here and you think, my goal is just really to come and worship and be anonymous and then leave. And I would say to our guests, that is really fine for the first couple of visits. And I would think about myself, if I were visiting a church looking for a new church home, um, I would want to go anonymously for a few times. Check it out, not get too involved until I know this is where God's calling me. But after a short amount of time, after you know this is where it is, then being anonymous isn't the goal anymore. Now I need to, because Jesus commands me to love one another in the body of Christ, I need to be known and, and love and serve other people. So maybe for some of you today, your move today in light of this, one move is I need to commit to a local church. If you're in the area looking for a church family, we welcome you here. And so pray about it. If God leads you here, we would love to have you part of us and you'll commit to the body. It's part of you loving others. You're going to worship with other people. You're going to serve together other people. You're going to help others in the life of the church. In the life of the church, a disciple is going to sacrifice time and comfort to to help other people for the good of them. You're going to be praying for other people. So hear clearly with me the words of Jesus, this command to love. But simultaneous, connected to the command, we have this ultimate example of love. Did you notice? The command to love as he has loved us. Verse 12 again. This is my commandment that you love one another. And notice this, 
as I have loved you. And he'd already said the same thing back in chapter 13, verse 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then don't you love verse 13? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the ultimate expression of love is Christ. In fact, right here, he's foretelling his death once again to his disciples, now mere hours before that death takes place that very next morning. They're about to see just how great the love of Jesus is for them. And they're to bring that to mind. And they're supposed to then love each other with that type of love. Isn't it, isn't it amazing love that Jesus would do what he did? Just to leave heaven and come to us is amazing. I was talking to somebody before the eight o'clock service and we were talking about our moms. Our moms have gone on to heaven. And we talked about how it's co so comforting at the holidays, though you miss them because they love Jesus and they're, they're in heaven, that we wouldn't want them back with us. In fact, she said to me, the person I was talking to, they would hate us if we somehow got them back from heaven. <laughs> and I thought that was funny. I thought that's true. Like if we somehow prayed and God answered it and they're, they're conscious of what they just had and now they're back like, why did you do that? What were you thinking? And so, but they bet Jesus though, he did leave heaven for us. Heaven's his home. And that he would leave paradise to come here on a mission 2,000 years ago when, I mean, the world's rough now. It was rough then. But this is amazing love that he would come for us. And then why did he come? He took on a body in the womb of Mary. He, was, he became flesh and blood for us. So that on a cross, at the end of his ministry, he would pour out his life for us. He would give his flesh and blood to make atonement for our sins. This is just stunning love. And we're to love like that toward other people. Just here, here again, the love and the mission of God. Colossians 1.19 and following. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body by flesh, by the flesh of his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. This is amazing. That's the mission of God. It's why Jesus came to give his body and blood for us. And this is the kind of love that we're supposed to give to other people. John even talked about this in his epistle in 1 John three sixteen. For by this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if you're a husband here today, you might be reminded that that's the kind of love I'm supposed to have for my wife. And if you've forgotten that, let's remind ourselves as husbands, Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But then we read here this upper room discourse. Jesus tells all of us, you know, you're all supposed to love each other in the church like I've loved you. You're supposed to lay down your lives for each other. And so think about that. Is there anybody in your life that you're willing to lay down your life for? And probably all of us can come up with a, a short list. There's people I'd be willing to take a bullet. Tell me I'd take a bullet for somebody. And hopefully uh, the Lord's working in your heart where you, no, there's a larger group of people that I would do that. But listen, probably you're not going to be called upon to do that. All of us in this room, we've lived this long and it hasn't come to that yet where we were supposed to lay down our lives and actually die for somebody. That could come. We should all be willing. But what if we were like this? What if a husband and father kind of took this posture to his family? Look, I'm willing to die for you people. And in the event that somebody were to break in, wake me up because I'm here on the couch watching TV, eating popcorn. And this is all I'll do. 
But if that day ever comes, I need to die for you, just somebody rouse me, wake me up. I'll pick up the baseball bat and I'll go to action. Until then, you guys run everything. And so everybody's scurrying around, doing all kinds of things. That would not be loving. That would be a security guard, not a husband or father. And so if we're really the type of people that love, we're on laying down my lives for people, until that day when I actually have to physically do it, I need to be serving these people. I need to be showing, I'm laying down my preferences for them, laying down my conveniences for them. Some things need doing around here, not just dying. That might never happen. So I need to be serving these people around me. So we're to love like Jesus, whatever that looks like, a sacrificial love that he has inspired and shown us what it looks like. So why is this love so important to Jesus that he would repeat it over and over again? He wants his people like this. Listen, this is the very heart of Jesus. This is his nature to be loving. It's the nature of our triune God. He loves like this and he expects his children to love like this. This should be a family trait for us. So what is he leading you to do in response to this? What are some tangible expressions of you taking to heart this command to love one another in the body of believers? What's that going to look like as you do this? I really do believe it's going to show up in your prayer life as you pray for others in the life of the church. I do believe it's going to express itself in a commitment to a local body of believers. And again, if you're around here, we would want you to, to commit here and let us commit to you. It does mean that you're going to be present. It would be very hard, be, hard, be very hard to love other people if you're rarely present. Or maybe it's every third month and, and nobody knows. I don't know when they're coming. It's hard to be counted on and to love others if it's a very sporadic pattern of attendance. But it's going to show up by being here and encouraging others and serving others. To love others like Jesus means you're going to invest time, over time with these people. And it's going to mean things like this, that you're going to, you're going to forgive other people and give grace. Isn't that loving like Jesus who has forgiven us millions of sins to be the type of people? Like, I am a person who's inclined because of all my forgiveness I've received. I'm inclined to give grace. When somebody lets me down, I, I want to nevertheless keep forgiving, keep loving. And if we're going to love like Jesus, it means we're going to find a place of service in the life of the church. Didn't Jesus say the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it's natural for us in Christ now. Oh, let me see how I can serve. How about this? Want to serve like Jesus? Want to love like Jesus? Look for an area of service that you know that nobody wants to do and step in that direction. Because that's what Jesus did. What an unpleasant task to come and take the sin of the world upon yourself. Nobody would want that. But all oh, the love of Jesus coming for us like that. I want to love like Jesus means, all right, I'm going to see some maybe some roles that, ah, that's going to be really inconvenient. That, that might cost me something to be involved in that one. And you see a need like that, like I, I want to love like Jesus. I want to step toward needs like that. Well, how about another expression of his love toward us? Check this out. Jesus invites us into friendship. Jesus invites us into friendship. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. So Jesus is telling them, look, you're going to obey me, but you're not obeying a cold leader, an uncaring master. You'll be obeying me and you'll know me as your friend. So see his love here. Jesus brings up friends here in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He brings up friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. But then he says here, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. So he, he runs that theme of friends here. 
And he tells his disciples, I'm, I'm not calling you just merely my servants. They are that, but your friends. And notice why he says so. Because I've disclosed to you the things that the Father has given to me. That is noteworthy, isn't it? If we, if we stayed in a mere master-servant relationship, a master is not inclined to give the servants really any information. I just gave you commands. You just go do it. And don't ask any questions. That's what a servant does. But Jesus says, you're, 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 not, that's, you're not that to me, merely. You are my servants, but I, I love you, and I have disclosed things to you because I'm treating you as friends. So think about a, a CEO of a company. A CEO of a company usually has his board of directors and they make decisions behind closed doors and they don't feel obligated to tell anybody anything sometimes. Like if you are a rank and file employee, um, you, you really can't demand of them, hey, tell me everything you're gonna do. What's the plan for the next year? Be nice maybe if they told you. You might sometimes be waiting on some press release and you learn with the rest of the world what the CEO wants to do. I mean, imagine if you work for Elon Musk. And whatever company he owns, he's got several of them. And if you were one of his employees, and he's probably got all kinds of ideas. And if you're just one of the employees, you really don't have a right to go pound on the door where he's meeting and say, hey, I kind of want some information here. I think you'd probably get dismissed just for bugging him, you know? That's how it's kind of normal. We don't have a right to know these things. But this is why it's so stunning. Here's Jesus saying, I'm treating you like friends. I'm not putting you in that category. I am disclosing to you all these things that God has given to me. I want you in on this so that you know what's happening. But here's what's interesting. Ask this question. Why would God speak to us? Who are we that God would give us information? He doesn't owe us any explanations. Oh, but this is the love of God. He wants you to know what he's doing. So that Bible you're holding on your lap or that Bible you're holding in your hand, that's an enormous expression of love to you from the Lord. He has loaded you up with massive amounts of truth right there at your disposal. That is another expression of love for you. You know in that Bible how the world came to be, that God spoke it into existence. You know how you can be right with God through the Savior because of the word of God. He wanted you to know that. And you know how the world's going to end and begin again in the new heavens and new earth. He's told you all of that and so much more in the Bible. God spoke to his people through the prophets. He is speaking to us through the scriptures. He spoke to us through his son, Hebrews 1.1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's even given us the spirit to illuminate, help us to understand the scriptures that he inspired. So see it with me. God is loving you and he's inviting you to come to him that you would know him. And because of the scriptures, you can know him quite well and you can trust in him and be comforted and you can enjoy him forever. So he has revealed so much to us. He has indeed been a wonderful friend to us, an unimaginably wonderful friend to us. But let's not mistake the word friend for peer. When he says, you're my friend, that isn't, oh, good. Okay, so we're equals. Don't, don't mistake that word friend for buddy. I remember a guy in seminary, he was in youth ministry, and I think he'd been in youth ministry a little long, and uh, he prayed like this. He said, God, I love you, man. I remember thinking, well, a little too casual, I think, for Almighty God. I, I, get, I love that intimacy there, and, uh, but I, th I think we're going to still understand he's awesome. This is God. He's holy God, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to him. I'm going to draw near because he loves me. He's the great one in the relationship. That remains true. He really is king. He is master. He's father. He really is a vine and I'm just a branch attached to him. Oh, but he gives us the privilege through Christ 
being his friend. Abraham was spoken of this way in the scriptures, but he never mistook who God was to him. James 2, 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And it's faith that makes that possible. So are you taking advantage of all that God has revealed to you? Jesus said, this is a mark of my friendship with you that I've disclosed all this truth to you. So ask yourself, am I taking full advantage of all that God has disclosed to me? So if you're, if you're having a friend reaching out to you, the right thing to do is go, oh, I, I want to re receive that. So what would you think about a friend? If you called your friend repeatedly and they never picked up the phone, wouldn't you think, I don't know that they're a friend anymore. Or if you sent text messages to somebody and they leave your text messages unread, you think, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with our friendship. But is it the same way with you that God has given you his word? He's loaded you up with all this truth. And you think, I don't really care to open it. I, don't, I, know, really, I know he says, I loved you so much. You're a friend. I've given you this information, but I don't really care. I didn't really ask for all that. That would be a very unloving thing to do. So we want to respond to this friendship by prioritizing, consuming the word of God in our lives. Here's another question as we apply this. Are you living as a friend of Jesus? So Jesus said, listen, I'm calling you friends, but then we think through, well, am I acting like a friend to the Lord? Because if he's your friend, if you're thinking clearly, he should be my best friend. He's perfect. He's awesome. He should have first place in my life. My greatest affections for, should be for him. He's the, he should be the greatest priority in my life. But then we examine our lives. Is that how I'm living? Does my life look like that in any measure should be there? We should be loving him, prioritizing him, following him closely. May God help us to do that. But then also, let's see another expression of love. We see it in his choosing of us. His choosing of the disciples, but his choosing of us. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This too is an expression of love. Now, it would be understandable, but not possible. It would be understandable if a person looked at God and thought, well, I'm going to choose him because he's perfect. I don't know any other perfect people, but he's perfect. I'm therefore going to choose him and give him my life. But we can't do it. We're dead in our sins. We're blinded in our sins. We can't choose him, though it would be reasonable for a human being to do that if they could see clearly. So what we see, though, is that God has chosen us. And think, why would he choose us? Because we are imperfect. We're all broken. We've been hostile to him. We've been enemies of him, alienated from him. And yet we're told he has chosen us. Here's a reminder that God has always been the initiator in our relationship with him. Reading this morning in my quiet time, I was in Luke 1 and struck by that same truth that it's all God's idea. We even think about the incarnation. So with an angel being dispatched by God, Gabriel sent from God to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, about the news about John the Baptist being born. So that's God initiating. Uh, Zechariah had no idea that was going to be happening that day. Or when the angel gets dispatched to Mary about her going to be bearing the Christ. That wasn't her idea. She hadn't been in her quiet time asking, you know, I really like to give birth to the Messiah. She didn't originate that idea. She's stunned that God has that idea that involves her making the point. God is always the one initiating in all these things. And so we praise him for this. And it was God's idea to call you to salvation to him. It's amazing. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I love 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. How about this? And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. There's a point in all this. One commentator said it this way. 
It's absolutely crucial whenever one discusses the subject of election to realize that election is not about privilege, but purpose. As early as the summons of Abraham to leave his home and receive the blessing of God, to receive a new name and become a great nation, that blessing was accompanied by a divine purpose, to be a blessing to all the people of the earth. Similarly, the promise of the presence of Jesus in the conclusion of Matthew is intimately united with the command, the commission, to go and disciple the world. This writer continues, so here also the choosing and appointing of the disciples is not merely for some privilege of being selected to an elite group, but for the specific purpose of bearing fruit. So Jesus has chosen us and saved us for a life of meaning, for a life of purpose. And that's another grace to us. You do realize how unique that is, that you have a purpose. You live among neighbors and family members, perhaps, who don't know God. They're not interested in following God. And their lives, consequently, have no ultimate purpose. And so they try to cobble together some temporary purpose. For many people in our day, their purpose has become the earth itself. It's become kind of a religion to care for the earth. And, of course, we also want to be good to the earth and take care of it, keep it clean and things. But have you noticed some people take on a religious fervor? for the actual earth. They don't have ultimate purpose. They have to find some temporary purpose. For other people, it's animals. And I hope you take care of your pets. We love our pets. But to have as your ultimate purpose, the care of animals, that's a lesser purpose. God created you and called you for greater things than that. For some people, it's their own identity. I'm just going to try to figure out who I am and, and all that and project that out into the world. Or, or for some, it's to be a part of a moral revolution. Let me just turn everything up on its head that we've ever known. But, but Jesus has called you to himself. It was his idea. And he's called you to a grand purpose. Here's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. John 15, the same idea. Jesus said, you should go and bear fruit. Even in Ephesians chapter two, when we read about being saved by grace through faith, even there we're told that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But the Lord has given us the resources to make that happen. We can't do that in and of ourselves. Look at verse 16. This great privilege of prayer. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So he has loved us, given us insight, given us truth in the word, given us power and provision to carry out the purpose even through prayer we're going to bear fruit, but not of our own ability. Remember, he is the vine. We're branches. We're going to bear fruit if we stay attached to him. Remember John 14, we're told he's going to send us another helper, a helper of the same kind who's with us and now is in us. But he closes with verse 17. These things I command you so that you'll love one another. But all these things we've talked about are really impossible for us to manufacture on our own. How can I live this life? How can I be loving like this? How can I love like Jesus? Well, it's going to begin by you responding to the love of Jesus. Impossible apart from that. And, and that's, the, that's the big news for everyone here today. If you have not already put your, your faith in Jesus, this is the day to do that. Jesus, I want to respond to your great love. That you would leave heaven for me, I want to respond to that love. That you would go to a cross for me and die for me, I want to respond to that love. 
that you'd be raised from the dead, that you would give this teaching and have it preserved for me, that I could know you like this, that you would load me up with a Bible. Lord, I want to respond to that love. And so today I pray that you'll do that. Recognize your sin, that you needed a Savior to do what Jesus did for you, and acknowledge that before him. Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that you paid the price for my sins. I recognize you were raised from the dead, and I'm asking you to save me. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How wonderful. Jesus said if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. It's amazing love. Would you respond to that today by receiving Jesus? Well, I love the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And thinking about the friendship of God brought this to my mind this week. I want to close with this, these, these famous words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can't we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there.